Good morning. My name is Jeff Carter, and I am one of the pastors here at CVCC. I have a message today that has been burning on my heart, a message that God has been teaching me my entire life. My fear is that I do not have the words to express it. My greater fear is that my hypocritical heart betrays that I am guilty of all that I'm speaking about today. I'd like to warn you up front that I'm going to be quoting a lot this morning from various teachers because I want you to know that nothing I'm going to share with you today is original with me. In fact, every teacher worth his salt will acknowledge, along with Isaac Newton, who said, if I have been able to see further than others, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Nothing I am going to share today. I mean, I mean every, everything I know, everything I teach has come from those older and wiser than me in the faith. Let's begin by asking God to bless and sanctify our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that our meager praise falls short of what you deserve. We humbly ask you to reveal yourself to us this morning. Help us to get a clearer glimpse of you than we had before. We ask you to pull back the curtain, pull back the veil so we can see you more clearly. We ask that you prepare our hearts for what you would have for us today. Please anoint and transform these simple ideas we'll talk about this morning into something that brings you glory. You deserve all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor, our Savior and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is how A.W. Tozer begins his monumental work, The Knowledge of the Holy. Let me say that again. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How can this be? Well, clearly the most important thing uh, is not our bank account. The most important thing about us is not our rank or title at work. And it's not even the, the cumulative effect of all the accomplishments we have amassed. And it's certainly not what we consider ourselves to be. No, ultimately, the most important thing about us is our view of God, because that will determine if our view of the world and our understanding of life and reality is accurate. It will also determine what we do with that life, and even more importantly, what our worship is like. A question every thoughtful Christian must grapple with is, who is the God we worship? What is he like? How close does our conception of God match up with the revelation he has given us of himself in Scripture? Is our picture of God worthy of who he is? Another question that that follows closely upon this is, what is the result of worshiping a wrong conception of God? What does the Bible call this kind of worship? It calls it idolatry. If we think back through all the stories in the Old Testament, what was the number one reason God wanted his people to to keep themselves set apart from the nations around them? It's because those nations would invariably draw Israel into idolatry. Is this not the universal plight of fallen mankind? Is this not our tendency to, to either worship a wrong conception of God or to substitute something else for God entirely? It is not too strong a statement to say that God is jealous of our worship. He alone deserves to be worshipped and worshipped rightly at that. But how can we worship him unless we have a proper understanding of who he is? Some have called A.W. Tozer a modern-day prophet. Certainly not in the biblical sense, but his writing carries with it a prophetic voice that we are in desperate need of today. He goes on in that work to say that 
we have lost our once lofty conception of the majesty of God. And he wrote this over 70 years ago. How much farther have we fallen since then? When people in the Bible came into God's presence, how did they act? What did they do? What was their conception of God? In Numbers 20, verse 6, it says, Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. First Chronicles 21.16 says, And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Does our conception of God prompt us to fall on our faces before him when we enter his presence? Tozer takes it one step further. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Do we have ideas or thoughts about God that are unworthy of him? What is the conception of God that we have crafted in our minds? I don't know about you, but I don't trust myself enough to be confident that my uh, understanding of God is adequate. I am a fallen, sinful creature. I view the world through cracked and clouded lenses. I tend to put God in, in convenient, sensible boxes. I can even sometimes make an idol of theology and believe that somehow through my own effort and understanding, I can truly comprehend God. Tozer goes on to say, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. Isn't that what we do? We want a God we can manage. We don't want so much God that it gets in the way of our agendas or a God that requires too much of us. Finally, Tozer finishes this thought by saying, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. Are the thoughts we have about God worthy of him? Do we see God for who he truly is? Do we approach God with the reverence that he is due? We're going to be traveling through quite a, a, through, a, a, quite a few passages of Scripture today. But where I want to start is in a, a, a verse that will serve as sort of a jumping off point for our time together this morning. The familiar verse in Romans 3.23 tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What Paul is arguing for is a universal need for justification based on uh, the universal state of fallen mankind. In other words, everyone has sinned and everyone has fallen short of the standard. But what I want to ask is, what, is what, what else might it mean for us to fall short of what God desires and indeed what God deserves. I believe we fall short in a number of ways. To be perfectly frank this morning, I believe we have lost a proper sense of awe for God. I believe we have a diminished view of God and an elevated view of man. And when it comes to what God desires of us in our Christian walk, and when it comes to giving God the honor and the awe that he is due, I believe we're falling short. How have we gotten to this place? How have we gotten to the place where we have missed all the warnings the Bible so loudly proclaims about idolatry and have fallen into the same error that plagued Israel all throughout their history? That's what I would like to talk about this morning. How have we gotten to the place where we have lost our sense of awe. How have we gotten here? And what can we do about it? 
I would like to explore the problem we face today and then talk about the hope we have for a solution because I believe there is hope. My hope is to help each of us recover an awe for God. It seems there are three aspects to the problem we face today, three factors that we will look at that have contributed to our loss of an awe for God. First, we have lost God in the familiar. Next, we sit on a stolen throne. And last, we have a misunderstanding of holiness. And there are several passages of Scripture that we will touch on that will help us explore this problem. So first, what does it mean that we have lost God in the familiar? I've spoken with many of you who have been around the church a long time. Many of you grew up in the church like I did and have heard the same uh, Bible stories over and over again. They can become so familiar that what can happen is what I like to call been there, done that syndrome. And I know some of you know what I'm talking about. We walk into church uh, and, and say with a, a pasted smile, oh, great, another message about David and Goliath. Yes, God can slay the giants in your life too. <laughs> Not sure why I'm all of a sudden from North Dakota. <laughs> Sometimes uh, the familiar can lose much of its impact. The sad truth is, sometimes our Christian walk can have the same sense of familiarity. We get up in the morning and have the same routine. Perhaps we have morning devotions, or perhaps we hit the snooze button a few times and think, I'll just pray on the way to work. We go to our weekly Bible study or small group, and things can sometimes become so familiar and so routine that they lose their impact. Many of us, myself included, have at one time or another thought there must be more to this, the Christian life than this same old routine. Day after day, week after week, year after year, struggling with the same sins, beating ourselves up over the same failings, and, and, and wishing that we could get back that excitement we once had about our faith. We can, in some senses become disillusioned and lose hope that our Christian walk will be anything more than just a routine. Others of us may be newer to the faith and simply have yet to learn about what it means to have a vibrant, growing, powerful walk with God. Ultimately, this danger of familiarity can even affect how we conceive of and approach God. We could become so familiar with him that we fail to treat him with the awe, reverence, majesty, and honor that he is due. We can fail to treat him as holy. Unless we think this is a modern problem, let's take a look at two characters in the Bible and see how they struggle with this issue as well. And we'll see that it uh, was a very costly error indeed. Now, these weren't uh, two minor characters either. These are two of the most uh, significant and godly men in history. We'll see, in the events, uh, uh, we'll see events in the lives of both Moses and David where they fell short when it came to treating God as holy. There are many stories in the Bible that are challenging to understand. You know, even though we know that God's ways are not our ways, sometimes um, we can... Um, we can have difficulty making sense of why God did something the way he did. And these are two such stories. There are very few, if any, people in the Bible that had such a, a close, intimate relationship with God as Moses. Uh, scripture tells us that God spoke to Moses face to face as one friend speaks to another. The face of Moses would glow with the glory of God after their time together. In fact, it even says that uh, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Now, whenever I hear that, I have to pause for a moment. In the book of Numbers, it says that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Who wrote the book of Numbers? 
What wasn't it Moses? Oh. So I'm just picturing Moses sitting at his kitchen table, writing this down on his papyrus, um, his wife sitting across from him, and he says, honey, how does this sound? Moses was a humble man. No. Moses was more humble than anyone he knew. That's not quite it. Can't you see, see her rolling her eyes? Moses was the humblest man in all of Israel. No, wait, I think I have it. Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. There we go. All that to say, Moses was the number one guy. And after all that he endured, all of the, the uh, desert time, all the suffering, all the grumbling and complaining that uh, he had to endure from the people he was leading, when it comes time to enter the promised land, what happened? God, told, God tells Moses that he's not allowed to enter. You ever scratch your head at that? I mean, what went wrong? What did, what did Moses do to get disqualified? In the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, you might remember how the people had no water. So in Exodus chapter 17, they cried out to the Lord, who sent Moses to help. God told Moses to strike the rock and water would come forth. That's a pretty cool miracle. Then later, near the end of the wilderness wanderings, the people were again complaining about having no water. And this time we read in Numbers 20 that God told Moses to go out and speak to the rock, and water would come forth. But what did Moses do? Once again, he struck the rock, not only once, but twice. You might be thinking, what's the big deal? God had Moses strike the rock before, so what if he does it again? Well, there are several things happening here. First, Moses disobeyed a direct command of God. We can't ignore or minimize that. Especially as God's representative to the people, the bar was pretty high for Moses to, to model obedience. We also see that Moses seems to take credit for this miracle. He says in Numbers 20, verse 10, Listen now, you rebels, must we bring you water out of the rock? He implies that it was he and his brother Aaron that were providing the water. Perhaps some pride was rearing its ugly head. There are other aspects as well, but when we look at the context, we see that it was Moses who was upset with the people. God wasn't. Moses struck the rock twice when God asked him to speak to the rock. Moses made it appear that God was angry with the people when God was not. Moses misrepresented God to the people. He did not treat God as holy, and it cost him the promised land. By the time we get to the end of the wilderness wanderings, perhaps Moses had gotten a bit too comfortable with all the miracles that God had provided. Perhaps he had uh, become too comfortable with you know, being able to come into God's presence. Perhaps Moses had become a bit too familiar with God. We also see an event in David's life that was even more costly. When David became king, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem from the house of Abinadab. David planned this huge event, a giant celebration with, with music and a parade. He even had a brand new cart built to carry the Ark. And leading the cart were the two sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio. And this is where the story becomes difficult. In 2 Samuel 6, we read that when the procession came near a threshing floor, the oxen stumbled. And afraid that the ark might fall, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady it. Uzzah touched the ark, and the Lord immediately struck him dead. Now many people stumble over this idea. That God would strike someone dead for doing something that seems to have been done with good intentions. I mean, he didn't want the ark to fall on the ground and get dirty in the mud, that would defile it, right? This is, after all, the most 
holy artifact in the history of Israel. This is basically God's throne on earth. It says that, that God would dwell between the cherubim on the top of the ark when he would meet with the people. I mean, Uzzah was just trying to protect it, wasn't he? Well, this is an example of where we, we just do not truly understand the holiness of God. God had given the Levites, and specifically the family of Koath, from which Uzzah had come, uh, very detailed, very precise instructions for how the tabernacle and all of the articles of God were to be handled. And the number one rule was that the ark was never to be touched with human hands. This was something every Kohathite knew from early on in childhood. There was no confusion about this. Where the misunderstanding comes in our mind, when we think that there is somehow, somehow something unjust about uh, God striking us a dead, is that we think that, that the dirt on the ground would somehow defile something holy more than would, touch, more than would the touch of a, human, a sinful human hand. The dirt was created by God and has no moral standing. It just is. Right? It's doing exactly what God created it to do, be dirt. So where do we get off thinking that it's justified to disobey the clear command of God and touch God's throne with a sinful human hand just so that it won't get some dirt on it? What we don't understand is what it means for God to be perfect and holy and pure, a being who dwells in unapproachable light. Our sin is an affront to the perfection of God. When I sin, in the words of R.C. Sproul, I defy the authority of God. I insult the majesty of God, and I challenge the justice of God. But Sproul goes on to say that we have become accustomed to doing just that. We have so come to presume on the grace of God that we justify our rebellion against the almighty creator of the universe. Our consciences have been seared, he says, and we think it no serious matter to insult, defy, and rebel against a perfect and holy God. The ark had been sitting at Uzzah's house for over 20 years. Do you think it had become familiar? Now, Uzzah was not the only one to blame in this instance. David did not treat God as holy in how he transported the ark on a cart in the first place. The only way the ark was to be transported was to be carried on foot by the Kohathites using poles that were inserted into the rings that were attached to the side of the ark. David knew this because he got it right the second time when he finally did bring the ark up to Jerusalem. But he did not treat God or his commands as holy. And Uzzah died as a result. To bring it closer to home, I have been a Christian for over 45 years. And in all that time, every single time that I sin, God forgives me. How easy is it for me to relax my view of the holiness of God and presume on his grace and think, oh, he'll just forgive me for this anyway. Has God become too familiar to us? Do we take him for granted? This is the first factor that has contributed to the loss of a proper sense of awe for God. We have lost God in the familiar, and because of that, I believe we're falling short. The second factor is that we sit on a stolen throne. We have been systematically sold a lie in culture today. That lie is that we need to have it all together, to be self-sufficient. We're told that we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and not be dependent on, upon anybody else. We're even told that self-sufficiency is a virtue. Yet that is the exact opposite of what God wants from us. The unrelenting message of the Bible is that we need to be freed from the shackles of self-sufficiency. God wants us to be completely and totally dependent upon Him. But to us, dependence smacks of weakness. 
We view dependence as a sign of failure or incompetence. Why is this idea of of independence and self-sufficiency so attractive to us? It's because we're self-centered. And being self-centered comes naturally to us. We are born self-centered. All we think about when we're young is our own needs. Again, and that's normal. I mean, can you imagine a baby who wakes up in the middle of the night and begins to cry and then thinks, you know, mommy has had a really rough day. Perhaps I can hold off on this diaper change for a while until she can get more sleep. No. Babies are self-centered. Children are self-centered until we teach them otherwise. Only as we grow and mature do we begin to understand that we are not the center of our own universe. And for some of us, that takes longer than for others. We need to begin to see that self is the essence of sin. We chose in the garden to be the boss of our own lives. We chose self over God. We rejected God as king and installed ourselves on the throne of our own lives. But can we see the absurdity of that? A created, contingent being ignoring not only the creator, but the sustainer of life. We are dependent upon God for every breath, every beat of our heart. Every molecule in our body is held together by the power of God. The rebellion of mankind against God is folly and is nothing more than the assertion of self. Tozer makes this statement. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. And that is the great danger. It is so natural to be self-centered, to to view and filter life through our own eyes. It takes a great deal of of training and discipline and, and learned humility, which is only acquired through suffering, to even begin to take the first steps toward dying to oneself. The self is so powerful. Tozer goes on to say, So subtle is self that scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. Even as redeemed children of God, this continues to be a struggle. We intellectually acknowledge the proper order of things. We we know in our hearts that God is king and we are not. Yet we still operate in the flesh. We still make decisions, set priorities, and, and act in everyday life as if we were sovereign. In our pride, we assert our own will, says Tozer. We treat God as visiting royalty with fanfare and celebration. He says we take his name upon our lips, but all the while hold tightly to our own right of self-determination. In one of my favorite quotes, Tozer says, Man bows to God, and as he bows, manages with difficulty to conceal the crown upon his own head. Is that not the essence of the issue? We bow to God, feigning worship, all the while clinging tightly to the usurper's place upon a stolen throne. We were not created to rule our own hearts. And when we try, deep down in that secret place, we know something is amiss. Isn't it ironic? We are so desperate for control. When the greatest need of our life is to cede that control back to God. We will not make any progress in our spiritual walk until we acknowledge self 
for the insidious enemy that it is. All we like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah. We have turned everyone to his own way. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes, declares the book of Judges. This perfectly describes the plight of fallen man. Our eyes are on ourselves instead of on God. And this is the essence of what it means to be sitting on a stolen throne. Is it possible that we don't think highly enough of God because we think too highly of ourselves? Let me ask that again. Is it possible that we don't think highly enough of God because we think too highly of ourselves? Now, I'm not talking about self-esteem. I I know we live in the age of of self-esteem where participation trophies rule the day. Now, I'm referring to relative importance. We we are living for ourselves in, in big ways and in tiny, subtle ways. We are the main characters on our own stage. We need to recognize that this is God's stage and He is the hero and we are bit players in His story. What we are called to do is to step down from the throne, begin to die to ourselves, and learn how to really begin to live for God. Because we sit on a stolen throne, a throne which we in no way deserve, we are blinded to the true majesty and glory of the rightful king. This is the second factor that has contributed to the loss of a proper sense of awe for God. We sit on a stolen throne, and because of that, I believe we're falling short. So first, we have lost God in the familiar. Next, we sit on a stolen throne. And the third factor that has contributed to a a loss of a proper sense of awe for God is that we have a, a fundamental misunderstanding of holiness. As I mentioned, I have a lot of quotes to share from some incredible teachers. One of my favorite teachers is R.C. Sproul. I consider Dr. Sproul to be one of the giants of the faith. And one of my favorite teachings of his is on the holiness of God. I came across this teaching many years ago when I was young in the faith, and it has radically shaped how I view God. I would highly recommend taking some time to search out uh, that teaching. You can look it up on on YouTube or Right Now Media. Just look for The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's easy to find. In this teaching, which I'm going to try to summarize a bit, he highlights the fact that we have a significant misunderstanding of what it means for God to be holy. He points us to Isaiah chapter 6, where we see the seraphim surround the throne of God and who never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He points out that when someone in scripture, and more precisely someone in the Jewish culture, wanted to emphasize something, um, to really call attention to something, they had a peculiar way of doing it. Whereas in our culture, we simply underline, italicize, embolden, or highlight something that we want to emphasize, what they used in their culture was repetition. And we've seen this in Scripture. When Jesus wanted to get the attention of the disciples, what would he say? Verily I say unto you. He was saying, take note of what I'm about to say. But what would he say if he really wanted to grab their attention? Verily, verily I say unto you. Right? It was emphasis through repetition. Paul also demonstrates this for us in Philippians 4 where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. But as Dr. Sproul so eloquently points out, there is only one attribute of God that is taken to the next level of repetition that is elevated to the superlative status of being repeated three times. Scripture does not tell us that God is love, love, love. Nor does it say that that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. What does it say? The Bible tells us that God is holy, holy, holy. 
That is the only thing said of God in Scripture that is brought to that level of significance. And if that weren't enough, this is not said of God once or twice. But what do we learn from Revelation chapter 4? It's that these holy creatures never cease in the presence of God to declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Forever and ever, unceasingly, it will be proclaimed that God is holy, holy, holy. Have we lost a sense of holiness, the holiness of God in our culture and in our time, and even in the church today? When we hear phrases like, the man upstairs, or the big guy in the sky, I fear that we have absolutely no concept of who God truly is or how he deserves to be treated. I think it might be helpful to take a look at what happened to people in Scripture when they were confronted with the holiness of God. Let's take a look at a a few instances of those who were exposed to the, the glorious, majestic, powerful, awful, and I mean that in the true sense of awe, devastating, Glory of God, the glory that makes mere mortals fall on their faces in dread. And let's see what their reactions were. When Jesus calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4, what was the reaction of the disciples? It says they were terrified. Yes, they were afraid of the storm, but they were absolutely terrified of someone who had power over the storm. In the Greek, it says that they feared with great fear. This was something they were not prepared for. So one reaction we see by those who know they're in the presence of God is terror. In Judges chapter 13, we read read about the parents of Samson who were asking the Lord to provide a child for them. When God appeared to them, they didn't know it was him. But when he left, he ascended in the flame from the altar. And what was their immediate reaction? It says that they fell on their faces to the ground and said, we shall surely die for we have seen God. They knew that the sinfulness of man could not dwell in the white, hot, holy presence of God. They experienced abject dread. At the end of the book of Job, after, Job finally, after God finally answers Job's questions about his suffering, what was Job's reaction to God speaking to him? He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see you, and I repent and despise myself in dust and ashes. He was devastated by his own pride and ignorance. Once God had spoken, Job put his hand over his mouth and was silent. Another reaction to holiness is devastation. When the prophet Habakkuk was complaining to the Lord about the injustices all around him, God answers him. What What does Habakkuk then say? He says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay entered my bones and I trembled where I stood. When he was confronted with the voice of God, he was completely overcome. One of my favorites is in the book of Daniel. We see the king Belshazzar was throwing a party uh, in defiance of the army that was camped outside his walls. Also at that party, he chooses in his pride to also defy the God of Israel by using the implements from the temple that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. Scripture says that at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote on the wall. Now, this was a very arrogant king, but he was not prepared for an encounter with the living God. I love the way the King James translation describes his reaction. It says, Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another. I'll let you use your imagination as to what the joints of his loins being loosed refers to. Suffice it to say that he was completely distraught. 
Then lastly, we come back to the book of Isaiah, to one of the most righteous men who had ever lived. What was Isaiah's reaction when he was confronted with the holiness and majesty of God? Let's read what it says. Again, I like the way the King James phrases this. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, because mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When sinful humans are confronted with the holiness of God, we experience a deep sense of our own unworthiness. We are filled with awestruck wonder, an all-consuming reverence and feeling of dread. Isaiah used the term undone. What Isaiah was saying is, I am ruined. I am cut off. I am devastated. I am utterly destroyed. He is saying that whatever it is that holds me together has let go. R.C. Sproul says, As soon as Isaiah sees the unveiled holiness of God, for the first time in Isaiah's life, he understands who God is. And the very second Isaiah understood who God was, for the first time in his life, he understood who Isaiah was. When we get a glimpse of who God truly is, it is only then that we have a clue as to how far from him we truly are. We need to regain an understanding of what awe is. We need to regain an understanding of what holiness is, what majesty is. This is the reaction that sinful humans have when when being exposed to to the majesty, the holiness, the purity, and the beauty of the Lord God Almighty. This is awe in its truest sense. And this is the kind of humble worship that God deserves. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Psalm 33, 8 tells us, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. The disturbing truth is we have no idea what awe truly is. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Yes, God dwells in unapproachable light, but he makes himself known to us. He approaches us and wants a relationship with us. He condescended to become one of us. Jesus took on an additional nature, a human nature, and will now and forever Be the God-man so that we would know what God is like. God loves you and wants an intimate love relationship with you. But at the same time, God is holy and deserves our honor, respect, humble submission, and worship. This is what he is due. If God were to appear to us visibly this morning and a mere fraction of his glory were made made, uh, known to us, what would our reaction be? Undoubtedly, we would be on our faces for a very long time. Does God not deserve that kind of worship even though he is not visible? Imagine, if you will, being invited to Buckingham Palace for an audience with the Queen for you and your family. It would be quite an honor. Imagine then when you arrive, everyone is bowing and curtsying and being sure to say all the correct your majesties. And then you adjourn 
to the sitting room, and everyone waits for the queen to sit first. Then all of a sudden, your teenage boy bounds over, plops himself right next to the queen, puts, himself, puts his feet up on the 400-year-old coffee table, and blurts out, What's up, Liz? How you doing? I imagine you would be beyond mortified. Why? Because we have decided that the Queen of England is due a measure of respect and honor. How much more true is that of the God of the universe and the creator of all that is? That is the third factor as to why I believe we have lost and that we need to regain a proper sense of awe for God. We have a fundamental misunderstanding of what holiness is, and because of this, I believe we're falling short. Yes, it's true. We have lost God in the familiar. We sit on a stolen throne, and we have a misunderstanding of holiness. But God does not want to leave us there, and that is where hope comes in. What I want to share with you is that no matter where you are in your faith, and I can say this with confidence, no matter uh, how far along you are in your Christian journey, there is so much more that God has for you. There is so much more uh, that God wants to reveal to you, so much more of himself that he wants you to experience, and so much more joy, peace, faith, love, and trust that he has in store for you. No matter if you are a brand new Christian or if you have walked with God your entire life and your face belongs up on the Mount Rushmore of Christian faithful, you know, Abraham, Moses, David, Pastor Brian, and you, right? I I guarantee you that you have only scratched the surface of the kind of relationship that God has in store for you. This idea is really the theme of why I do ministry. I long to help people take that next step in their journey with God. My desire is to help people see God more clearly so they are drawn into passionately pursuing Him with all that they are. And that really is the key. When we see God more clearly, we are drawn to Him more fully. My message of hope is that there is so much more. What I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking is that God is unapproachable. God absolutely wants to be in a relationship with us. He has sacrificed his son to make a way for that relationship to happen. But that relationship must happen with an understanding of who God is and who we are. What I do want us to do is to re-examine how we view God. He is not simply the best of what we can conceive of. He is in a different category altogether. His perfection, his beauty, and, and holiness is far beyond what we can even imagine. We need to humble ourselves and to give God his due. We need to treat God with the, the awe and the reverence that he is owed And when we humble ourselves, we elevate, magnify, and glorify God. You know, God is not only the most perfect and holy thing in existence. He is also the most beautiful and desirable. Once we get a glimpse of who God truly is, we want nothing else. And that is my desire for this morning, that we would get at least a glimpse, a partial glimpse of who God is, so that we would then seek out more and more glimpses, so that we would then be drawn into an unrelenting, unquenchable desire for more of God, and so that that we would then share that experience with others. What is our natural reaction to seeing an incredible sunset, or a beautiful painting, or a, a selfless act of kindness? We want to share that with others, right? How much more when it comes to something of infinite worth? But if that's going to happen, we need to spend time with God. The obvious reality is that the only way to get to know someone is to spend time with them. 
in this new year, perhaps it might be worthwhile to reevaluate how much effort we are devoting to simply spending time with God. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't take charts or graphs to measure. Simply dedicate yourself to spending more time with God. Whether that's in a, in a small group where you devote your, your time together to seeking out a clearer and clearer picture of God. Or through a regular quiet time where you uh, persist in asking God to reveal His glory to you in a new way. Or perhaps through reading amazing authors like A.W. Tozer with a group of friends or family. I thought it would be fitting to end with another quote from Tozer. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into Him, that they may delight in His presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and center of their hearts. Yes, we have fallen short, but God does not leave us there. He invites us to a deeper, richer, more intimate fellowship and relationship with Him. But we must respond. Worship is a response to all that God is with all that we are. Let's respond to who God is with a life of worship. Let's pray. Lord God, teach us how to worship you. Teach us how to treat you with the awe and honor that you deserve. Let our hearts cry, be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let our life be nothing more than a testimony to your greatness. Help us to desire to see you more clearly and desire this more than anything else. Stoke in us a fire for you that nothing can extinguish. Not circumstances, not neglect, not misplaced priorities, not secret sins. Lord, let our passion for you be all-consuming. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.